Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. We are back from our brief holiday hiatus and are looking forward to a new year ahead full of interviews and conversations about movies in the Elm City. But before we get any further into 2017, we're going to do what we like to do on every first episode of the new year, uh, and that's look back at some of our favorite movies from the year that was. On today's episode, I'll be joined by New Haven movie blogger Dan Heaton and Madison Art Cinema's Arnold Gorlick to go through our top 10 movies of 2016. We'll also feature throughout the episode some voicemails from Deep Focus guests, friends, and listeners who called in over the past few weeks to leave short messages about their own favorite new movies from the past year. This is always a very fun, gem-packed show, so be prepared to learn about a lot of great movies that came out in 2016. Uh, so without further ado, I want to welcome at least the guest that is here, and another is en route, but the guest that is here is my friend and colleague, Dan Heaton. Dan is a New Haven-based editor who blogs about movies at cheeseblab.blogspot.com. Dan, thank you very much for coming back on the show. You look, well, you are a year older, but you don't look a year older. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me back. My pleasure. Great to be here. And Arnold Gorlick, the founder and owner and operator of Madison Art Cinemas, should be on his way. Uh, but before we dive into our lists, I want to kick things off with two quick voicemails from my regular movie reviewing buddies on Deep Focus, Alan Appel and Lucy Gelman. So first we'll hear Alan's picks for the best movies of 2016, and then we will hear Lucy Gelman's picks for the best of 2016, and then Arnold, Dan, and I will jump in with, with our own lists. Hi, Tom. This is your uh, pal on Deep Focus, Alan Appel, and I am calling to... Uh, tell you that I had a very hard time choosing my favorite film uh, of the ones we discussed this year. It came down to uh, the the great movie about Puritan witchery, The Witch, and loving the film about the the, the wonderfully self-effacing couple whose uh, love for each other was the basis for the case that uh, eliminating the laws uh, that prohibited interracial marriage in 1967, Loving versus Virginia. I came down on the side of loving because it made me feel so good. Hey, Tom. This is WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman calling to say that my favorite film of 2016 was Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. It's a Korean film, and it was just incredibly visually resplendent and uh, sort of a charming surprise. There are two very formidable women at this movie's core, and it was like a film noir meets Edo period woodcut printing. I, I think for anyone who wants to be surprised, they should go see this movie. It's um, it's also really just a visual tour de force. I don't think I've seen anything like it since maybe Mr. Turner in 2015. So yeah, go see this movie. Um, I was really, really happy I did. Bye. Film noir meets Edo period woodcut. I, I challenge need, any of us to top of that those. description. Yeah. That is a wonderful one. Uh, Lucy Gelman's pick for the best movie of 2016 was Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. And then we had Alan Appel calling in with his two favorite movies of the year, Robert Eggers' The Witch and Jeff Nichols' Loving. Our featured second guest, Arnold Gorlick, has just walked into the studio. Arnold, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Arnold is the founder and owner and operator of Madison Art Cinemas, uh, an independent art house movie theater in Madison, Connecticut. So before we, we jump into our lists, I want to throw a very general question out to both of you. Maybe I'll go to Dan first and then over to Arnold. And that's looking back at the year that was. To tell, me, tell me what you think about the year 
of 2016 in movies? Was this a good year for movies? Was this a bad one? A one that surprised and delighted or terrified and appalled? You know, uh, every year people say that the movies are getting worse year by year. And every year I find plenty of movies to go to that, that delight me. I, I, it was, I saw lots of good movies. I saw a few bad movies. I have no complaints. On last year's show, you said that a goal of yours for 2016 was to, I believe you phrased it as, I want to see more movies where the directors did not have a penis or something something like that. But I believe like a goal that, of yours yeah. was to prioritize female directors. Uh, as you look back at 2016, was that something that either you were able to accomplish, you felt like the movies made available for you to accomplish? It, it uh, Female directors and also uh, female-centered stories, more 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 uh, stories that centered on females who weren't wearing spandex and had superpowers, I think was, was one of the ways I put it. Uh, yeah, I was, you know, I go to so many movies that a handful of additional ones uh, sort of makes a difference. And I did, I, I've jotted down a list of, I've got seven titles here and some of them like uh, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, and uh, The Shallows, and Moana. I was very glad to have um, made the effort to go out to the mall and, and see them. Uh, others like The Lady in the Van or Hello, My Name is Doris, I could have done without. So that's fine. Uh, I I would actually flip that, that assessment exactly. I think The Lady in the Van and Hello, My Name is Doris were two of, two of my favorite smaller comedies this year. They're not on my list, though, but oh, Maggie Smith, oh, wonderful. Um, Arnold, uh, as before we jump into our top 10 lists, any general assessments you'd care to throw out there from your year, uh, another year running a movie theater, another year watching a lot of pictures? What'd you see in 2016? Well, as, <clears throat> as the year was coming to its conclusion, uh, I thought that this is one of the richer years that we've had in, in for a long, long time. And um, I'm just bottled up wanting to play all of them, but I only have two screens. But I, I find it a very rich year. What can I say? We were at Toronto. It was a rich experience. You know, even though there were a number of kind of much talked about think pieces over the summer about how 2016 represented the end of movies, the end of the kind of cultural relevance of movies. And this is something that people bemoan in really any field all the time. So it's not particularly new, but this was a particularly weak summer, I think, for the, the big kind of action blockbusters. There were, there were no Mad Max Fury Roads. There, there were no kind of big movies that had uh, kind of artistic credibility in addition to, and I don't even know if there were many popular successes from over the summer, but this fall has really, I don't know, every single movie that's come out this fall has really, um, I think, been worth seeing and thinking about, even if not every could make our list. So let's, uh, I want to throw out one kind of theme that I saw, at least in the movies that I picked and really responded to in this year, uh, and that is this tension between an inflated sense of confidence and then uh, traumatic self-awareness when that confidence is revealed to be just kind of a sham. Um, I found myself drawn to movies about characters who start off knowing exactly who they are and how they are in control in their world, only to find that their understanding of the world and of themselves in it is not nearly as solid as they once thought. And sometimes this awareness comes with kind of joy and equanimity, um, but all too often it comes with pain and, and heartache and kind of destruction. So that, oh, that's somewhat somber. Oh, well, you're, you're going to hear over the course oh, okay. of my list uh, where that theme pops up. But let's, uh, let's jump into our, our top tens. We're going to see how, uh, how, how quickly, but also uh, uh, thoughtfully we can go through these and uh, 
Arnold, let's maybe we'll start with you with your another, number 10 movie of 2016, and then I'll go to Dan, and then back to me. So, Arnold, what's number 10? Number 10 is an unlikely movie by an unlikely director, because A, few people have seen it, but it's considered a 2016 movie because it was on the film uh, festival circuit. And it did play at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it surprised me because I'm not normally drawn to the director, Carl Reiner. Uh, Carl, uh, Rob Reiner, sorry, Rob Reiner. And it's LBJ, played by Woody Harrelson and Jennifer Jason Leigh as Lady Bird Johnson. I was just struck by the authenticity of it, and it didn't feel like a caricature at all. And it showed the complexity of LBJ and also his political powers. I was unnerved by the uncanny. Um, a performance by Jennifer Jason Lee, who just seemed to be Lady Bird Johnson. But with all of Johnson's humor, wisdom, ironic view of life, he, what uh, made civil rights such a cause for him and why and how it came from his own personal life. Woody Harrelson gave an extraordinary performance. That's that's my number 10 pick. That's that's one that I didn't get a chance to see at Toronto, but I remember you speaking quite uh, fondly of. I don't even up, think it looked, was a distributor yet, and I don't understand it. I look forward to seeing it. And, you know, it played uh, up against uh, Jackie, another kind of historical piece from that era, and Selma from a few years ago also, you know, had a very prominent role for, I think, Tom... Uh, I forget the name of the actor, but for someone playing LBJ and not the most flattering of lights. But uh, no, I'm, I'm eager to see Rob Reiner return to form. I haven't seen a movie of his that I've really loved in a while. So um, I'm, yeah, I, I'm I, looking I forward not, to LBJ. I had not heard of that. I look forward to it quite a bit. I Dan, mean, I'm, oh, I'm, Dan, I know that you uh, you put together a, a slightly different type of list. You took a slightly different approach. What What is the what's the first movie you're going to mention and, and well, why are you mentioning I, it? As I should explain, as the four readers of my blog know I have a very short attention span, so I've quickly become bored with the notion of 10 best. So what I've done is... Uh, come up with 10 categories with the best or worst or most or least. And my first category is the most puzzling film to find on so many best lists. And don't get me wrong, I didn't hate or even dislike Tony Erdman, the German comedy about a chronic practical joker and his long-suffering daughter. But maybe subconsciously I was imagining the real-life consequences of subjecting my real-life adult daughter to such professional and personal embarrassment. In any case, of the three factors cited in every review, charm, hilarity, and length, the last is the only one that made a deep impression on me. That, that's it. <laughs> I, I think everyone in this room has seen Tony Erdman. It's not on my list, and I'm, I'm probably not in yours. But it, it's a movie that I... It was one of my favorites from Toronto. We did play it at a Sunday cinema club, and of course... They don't know what they're coming to see until they see it. They loved it. It's Surprised a me. nearly three-hour movie, all in German. And, you know, it's. I think what I so appreciate about it um, is the type of relationship that it described between a father and daughter that we see so rarely on screen. Sometimes just seeing something that is not often represented, not incredibly acrimonious, not <laughs> incredibly loving or endearing, It's. it seems both very funny, very odd, and very real. This is a dad who embarrasses his daughter at every single step of her life. The only problem is she's not a 10-year-old on a soccer team. She's a 35-year-old trying to make it in the kind of white-collar world of outsourcing in Bucharest. And and he, you know, as a kind of bumbling middle school teacher um, from rural Germany, kind of puts the lie to the idea that you have to be in that constant rush for money, for power, for success in order to lead a happy and meaningful life. And that relationship between the father and daughter, as well as the fake teeth and the wig, made enough of an impression on me, um, not just the length. 
Uh, my number 10 movie of 2016 is Fences, Denzel Washington's adaptation of August Wilson's Pulitzer Prize winning play about a garbage man in 1950s Pittsburgh who used to be an accomplished baseball player in the Negro Leagues, but now spends his time obsessing over his patriarchal omnipotence from the safety of his backyard. Uh, Washington, as a first-time director, does a fine job of using close-ups and the occasional heavy-handed symbol to reinforce the themes of claustrophobia and domination, but he never lets the images get in the way of the screenplay um, adapted by August Wilson before he died uh, and the performances by Washington and Viola Davis. And even though I think this is an okay directed movie, it is such an incredibly written um, and structured and performed movie that I think those performances catapulted to this top 10 list alone. Washington in particular channels the just the verbal potency at the core of Troy's character. He's a man who creates worlds out of words, just facts be damned. He's bombastic, deceptive, selfish, and self-sacrificing, a man committed to familial responsibility, but who actually has no idea what his family wants or expects from him. Um, Washington is the perfect actor to play this character. He is someone who, when he is going on his tirade, you know, as in training day or anything else, you, you believe him. You kind of feel like you have to believe him. He's such a force of personality, but you want to believe this larger-than-life figure, and that is exactly what Troy is. Uh, and this movie, this play, lets Troy kind of build himself up and then topple of his own weight, leaving an impression in, in the backyard for his family to marvel at. So Fences uh, by Denzel Washington is my, my number 10 movie of 2016. All right, Arnold, number nine. Florence Foster Jenkins, uh, directed by Stephen Frears, one of my favorite directors. Meryl Streep stars as Florence Foster Jenkins and Hugh Grant. And until I saw another film, which I'll mention later, I thought she was likely going to win the Academy Award for Best Performance. Uh, a foreign, a French movie called Marguerite came out before it, which I thought was the true story of Florence Foster Jenkins, and the Americans were going to mimic it and tell um, a secondary story about it or an adaptation of it. Until I learned this is the real story, and it did happen in the United States. Florence Foster Jenkins exists, and I know somebody who has that one record that she recorded exactly. Of course, Florence Foster Jenkins is a socialite who supports the arts, mainly um, musical performance and concert halls and so on and so forth, and her fancies herself an opera singer and actually can approximate moments of doing okay but largely sings out of tune with no self-awareness whatsoever. People indulge her because there's money to be gotten as a uh, benefactor for their projects, and she does wind up giving a concert at Carnegie Hall as a benefit, which is its climax in the movie. Dan, Hugh I th- Grant also gives, I think, the best performance of his career in it. I didn't think he had that capacity until I saw it. Dan, I think you may have a complimentary pick for, for uh, Florence yeah, Tom, Jacobs. Tom uh, sharpened the knives. Uh, my next... Uh, my next film is the best film made unnecessary by a vastly better film on the same story. Lawrence Foster Jenkins has Meryl Streep, so of course it's watchable, even engaging. But if you saw Marguerite, a 2015 film hidden from us by the French until early last year, you could only weep for the American film's timing. Easy comic setup. Marguerite Dumont wants to sing in the worst way, and that's precisely what she does. But because she's a generous patron, neither her husband nor the members of the club she supports will tell her what she can't hear for herself. She is an operatic Norma Desmond with a tin ear but a generous heart and a beautiful soul. Therein lies the comedic rub. 
because of that beautiful soul, we want Marguerite shielded from the truth. Or better yet, we'd like a miracle to transform her voice to match her soul. Uh, this might well have been uh, a, a foreign film nominee last at last year's Oscars. Uh, France nominated the also excellent Mustang for the foreign film Oscar. But since we weren't allowed to see this until this year, I'm making that one of my picks. I'm, I'm afraid Marguerite. I can't I can't weigh in on this debate um, because I actually haven't seen either Marguerite or Florence Foster Jenkins. But I, you know, I will leave it to you two to duke it out as to which By the way, I which love, adaptation I love is Marguerite. It? So Arnold just proving that he is perhaps more magnanimous than Dan and that he doesn't have to decide between the two. He can like them both. <laughs> oh, Arnold is absolutely more magnanimous than me, but that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> Before we get to my number nine pick, I want to play another voicemail, and this one is from. Uh, one of my colleagues at The Independent, Brian Slattery, who is the arts editor here. Let's hear Brian Slattery's pick for the best movie of 2016. Hey, this is Brian Slattery, the arts editor of The Independent Calling. And um, I'd like to put in a plug for The Witch, one of the scariest movies I've seen in a while, and also a really wonderful evocation of life on the frontier during the colonial period, which makes it sound like something that nobody would ever want to do if they were in their right minds. But I'm really glad that he made this movie. So that's that's Brian with his pick for uh, the best movie of 2016, Robert Eggers' The Witch, which is not, um, which is a movie that I loved, a movie that just missed my top 10. But I think I wanted to play it here because the movie, uh, one of the movies closest to a horror movie that made my list is my number nine, which is called Cretia, uh, directed by Trey Edward Schultz, first time director, only 28 years old. Uh, he made this movie for under $100,000, a cast of predominantly non-professional actors with one mundane setting. And just like with The Witch, this is a setting that people probably want to avoid. A well-appointed suburban home in, in Texas where a family has gathered for a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, our protagonist of sorts is Cretia, a middle-aged woman who's returned to her sister's place for the holidays after abandoning her extended family and only child years earlier. She's still struggling with the various substance addictions that presumably kept her away from her family for so long, but is hoping that this Thanksgiving dinner will be the, the one where she reconciles herself with all of her estranged loved ones, the sprawling multi-generational family of boisterous men, soothing women, and, and howling dogs under this Texan roof. Uh, I think what I... You know, recognize and Joe Fay and I spoke about this movie a couple weeks ago. Th this movie is very well acted. Uh, it's very well directed, but this is evidence of how you do not need a lot of money to make an incredibly suspenseful movie. And the the trick there is what you do in post production. The work of the cinematographer, but also editing and music, really turns the most mundane of interactions into something that seems kind of life or death. Here is a character who over a number of times in the course of the movie, goes to the bathroom to self-medicate. She takes pills, she drinks, she does cocaine, and after each uh, um, kind of further step away from sobriety, the, the aspect ratio, the filters of the camera, everything kind of changes. So after the pills, we see just a frenetic living room of people jumping up and down, watching a football game. She's frantically trying to stuff this turkey with about everything in the kitchen. Uh, everyone is popping up behind her and giving her a near panic attack. All the dogs are howling. After she starts drinking, we see everything in slow motion and, of course, a, a slow motion uh, kind of fatal drop of one of the key Thanksgiving dishes. Uh, and we see, you know, a portrait of addiction as an illness. Illness is something 
that is kind of beyond willpower. This is something that this woman, no matter how much she wants to overcome it, she cannot differentiate between disappointment and hatred in her family members' responses to her. So when she misinterprets things as hatred, you know, please don't do that as I'm never forgiving you ever. She goes to self-medication. She just fuels that self-hatred that only kind of further fuels her addiction. So this is uh, an incredibly edited and and scored movie. And Trey Edward Schultz at just 28 years old is really a a directorial talent to watch. So that's a Cretia is my number nine. I've been looking forward to that uh, coming to town and you've just made me extremely impatient for it. It sounds like my kind of, as my uh, kids would say, sad bastard film. And I mean, it's going to be hard to find a screen for it. <clears throat> I think it's already been ava- made available yeah. and nobody booked it. And for, I mean, for, not that comparison is the best form of film criticism, but if you're a fan of David Lynch or John Cassavetes or uh, Terrence Malick, there is a lot, a lot of those influences into this. But you're not dysfunctional saying this is part family. of the horror genre. There's horrific well, things in it, but it's not. Well, I think that the way that music is employed and editing is employed, this comes. She emerges as a kind of. She's a, a, a hippie at one point, a Greek goddess at another, and a witch in the last. And I I, it's not explicitly within the horror genre, but what happens to her and what she inflicts on her family is truly horrific. So, um, all right, number eight, Arnold. I Am Not Your Negro, a documentary directed by Raoul Peck. Uh, his most well-known documentary before this was called Lumumba, uh, with the voiceover of Samuel Jackson quoting uh, James Baldwin. And he's not the usual shouting uh, Samuel Jackson. He doesn't sound like James Baldwin, but he's soft-spoken and develops the cadence of James Baldwin, even though we know it's Samuel L. Jackson. Um, before... Before, as right in the, he was in the middle of a book, James Baldwin, when he died, called "Remember This House," where he, um, where he has a, it, the movie is a narration, a radical narration about race in America, and it's done through the lives and assassinations of three of Baldwin's friends: Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and Malcolm X, using only the original writer's words. There's some documentary footage in it, which is interspersed with it as well. And I just didn't expect, I had forgotten the greatness of James Baldwin, the breathlessness of never being at a loss for words, his utter courage to speak in the, to think on his feet when faced with great intellects who oppose his point of view, um, a voice that sadly missed today, I wish he were, he were around today. It's not very cinematic. It'll play fine as a PBS documentary. It will go to theaters. But um, I was deeply moved and edified by it. That's that's one that I'm very much looking forward to catching up with. I feel like every community conversation that I go to that have taken place in the city after the election of Donald Trump uh, has opened with some quotation from James Baldwin. He seems to have something uh, for just about every occasion, especially it's reflecting upon the kind of deeply ingrained and racial it's appreciation, and not just of tensions. genius, but of a yeah. certain kind of genius. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great pick. I, yeah, another one I'm eager to see as well. I saw a trailer for it a couple of weeks ago and had read about it. Yes. Oh, it's great. What's your, what's your next pick, Dan? Uh, my next category is best rape romance. This can only be the intermittently despicable Paul Verhaven's thoroughly despicable yet compelling L. I can't really bring myself to say anything about the film itself, 
But I'll tell you that that night I dreamed I was the willing consort to a vampiric Isabelle Huppert. If Mademoiselle Huppert is listening, I want to make clear my unequivocal interest in such an arrangement. <laughs> this is a film I'll never forget and never willingly revisit. I love how Isabelle Huppert's character, she plays this French video game CEO in Paris who has a terribly distressing past that she's trying to put behind her. And the very opening scene of the movie uh, is a home invasion and assault, a very uh, meticulously and visually described assault. In fact, Arnold and I saw the, saw the first 40 minutes of this at Toronto, and I remember you know, we, we open on a picture of the cat watching the assault. And I heard the assault and saw the cat and I laughed. And I thought, oh, great. Here's this cat watching this, you know, this sexy romp in the kitchen. You know, what a delightful well, thing to sexy. open on. It was and, then it, and, <laughs> and then it winds up being, you know, a vicious rape. And the, the laugh certain and the grin certainly slid from my face after watching that. And that's what Paul Verhoeven does. That's exactly I couldn't, right. couldn't yeah. quite bring myself to put this on my list because I don't know if I kind of politically agree with where it ends up <laughs> it's it kind of it's it seems that's a, a it's, very it's an odd, gentle way to put it and yet i her performance is incredible i love how at no point is she a sympathetic character no, she is defiantly kind of acrimonious to everyone in her life on, on my blog i opened but, my blog post on this saying she doesn't give a shit what you think about her but that you know what that scene in which she is kind of frantically closing all of the window shutters with the, her neighbor kind of behind is one of the most beautiful scenes I've seen in any movie all year. Um, that's, that's a good, that's a I good just pick. didn't believe what was happening. That's yeah. all. And I thought it was well acted and well done, but I didn't believe it. And the re <clears throat> recapitulation of the rape a number of times throughout it was jarring to me. My uh, number eight movie of 2016 is one I saw at Toronto, kind of like with uh, Arnold's LBJ pick. I don't think this has uh, this has made it to many U.S. movie theaters yet, but hopefully it will in, in 2017. And it's a Japanese film called After the Storm by Hirokazu Koreeda. Uh, it tells the story of Shinoda Ryota, played by Hiroshi Abe, a once-promising novelist turned half-rate private detective with a serious gambling problem. The movie follows Ryota as he desperately seeks to win back the love of his estranged ex-wife, and confused young son. Um, on the one hand, this is kind of a variation on a familiar cinematic character, the the private eye. He's perceptive, disheveled, altruistic against his better judgment, um, sharp enough to think he understands the big picture, but completely, you know, clueless, uh, not patient enough to recognize his own contributions to his failures, his selfishness, his lack of self-control. Uh, but what so endeared me to this movie is how patient, understated, heartfelt it is. It's much closer to an Ozu kind of family drama than it is to a Bogart film noir. The combination of the clear and sensitive composition of each image, the gentle and meandering pacing and score, and the flailing, just self-destructive love of the story's protagonist makes it a quite an emotional hit when all the characters end up under the same roof, weathering the 20-somethingth typhoon of the season at the end. Uh, it's not a story of redemption, but of an imperfect individual slowly coming to realize the extent of his imperfections, and sometimes that's really all that we can do. So, After the Storm by Hirokazu Koreeda is my number eight movie of 2016. Uh, number seven, Arnold, what, what do you have? The Innocence, and you'll be happy to know, directed by Anne Fontaine. Uh, she did, before that, one of her movies was Coco before Chanel. Oh, yes. And so on. This was a pitch-perfect movie to me, one that uh, one wouldn't necessarily think, at least myself, that I wouldn't anticipate I would have liked as much as I did, but I love this movie. First, visually, every scene was looking like looking at a Vermeer. 
in those muted tones. It's set in 1945 Poland, just at the end of the war, and uh, a nun uh, uh, secretly leaves the monastery looking for a, a doctor, urgently. She doesn't want a Russian doctor, for sure. We find out later why. She only wants a French doctor, not even a Polish doctor. She finally gets to the hospital and pleads with the nurse to come back with her and has very difficult difficult time pleading with this nurse and succeeding, but finally persuades her. When she comes back, she finds a monastery filled with pregnant nuns in an advanced state of pregnancy. That's the starting point of the movie. It is brilliant, and it's a true story. Great, and so it's The Innocence, and who's that directed by again? Anne Fontaine. Anne Fontaine. That's one that, did you see that, Dan? I it was spoken not. in French I, and I Polish. Oh, familiar. That's, yeah. that's great. Oh, I look forward to, to catching up with that. Um, all right, uh, you're true to your word, Arnold. You're bringing up some movies that neither of us seen. I love it. Uh, hopefully listeners are, are writing down these recommendations. We, um, uh, we played uh, The Innocence played? Uh, at the Madison Art Cinemas, and it was well-received and well-attended. Got to keep your eye on the schedule at Madison Arts. Um, Dan, what's your? What's the next Arnold, movie you want to bring Arnold, up? Arnold, I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot. If you'd rather not do this, that's fine. I'll, I'll read the, the part. But I have a dramatic uh, dialogue here that Tom has uh, agreed to read the male part in, and I would love it if you would read the, the female part. Sure. Okay, there you go. Uh, my next uh, category Which is, is the, the female f- part. The, oh, it's pink, of course. <laughs> <laughs> my, next, uh, my next category is the film that most made me want to attack everyone involved with a ball-peen hammer. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask my colleagues to give a dramatic reading from The Light Between Oceans. All right, we will, we'll do a little bit of this. I'm not sure if we have time for the whole thing, but we'll start it off and we'll see how far we make it. So my, my character name and my real name is Tom. So hello, I'm Tom. And as I'm played by Michael Fassbender, I'm the most beautiful man in what seems to be Australia, but I'm terribly and invisibly damaged. I'm overcome to meet you, Tom. I'm Isabel. And coincidentally, since I'm played by Alicia Vikander, I'm the most beautiful woman, woman in what is actually New Zealand, as it turns out, and I too am deeply and invisibly damaged. Given everything we have in common, let's get married, and just to give the gods an easier time to smite us some more, let's live in isolation on your symbolically named lighthouse island, Janice. I was thinking the same thing. Our babies will be too beautiful to live anyway, and that way we'll have to try to bring them to term hours from any medical assistance. Brilliant, frankly. I think the odds are better of a viable child being tossed up by the sea than by my loins. I think that's a good place to end this, as much as I love the, the remainder of the script. So, so Dan, I take it you didn't like The Light Between Oceans. That is correct, Tom. You are perceptive. <laughs> perceptive assassin. Um, I, you know, Michael Fassbender, kind of a, a tough year between this and Assassin's Creed is his big movie at the end of the, a video game adaptation, also starring, Oh yeah, I think, Marion yeah. Cotillard. Uh, uh, reteaming with the director of Macbeth from last year. But Times is tough as, out there. <laughs> for incredibly attractive and talented uh, actors. This is Betsy Kim from New Haven, Connecticut. My favorite movie was Eye in the Sky, a 2015 British film released in the U.S. in April 2016. It definitely will keep you on the edge of your seat as you contemplate the ethics, like the philosophical trolley problem, and some of the larger consequences tied to modern-day drone warfare. Okay, I'm going to uh, read my, my seven and six a little quickly and then jump to uh, my number five and play a voicemail then. So I want you guys to kind of qu- 
maybe prepare some truncated stuff for your next two, and then we'll jump to um, jump to your number five. So my number my number seven is Green Room by Jeremy Saulnier, his follow up to Blue Ruin from a few years ago. This is about a uh, a punk band traveling the Pacific Northwest in desperate search of paying gigs. Uh, when a show falls through in a sleepy college town in coastal Oregon, they find themselves at a uh, a neo Nazi club nestled deep within the evergreen forests outside of of Portland. Uh, unfortunately for them, they witness an accident that they shouldn't, and they are catapulted into an escape-the-room situation where they have to either convince or fight their way out against the neo-Nazis before those neo-Nazis rush in, as led by Patrick Stewart um, and kind of end everyone's concerns. Uh, you were talking about just the beautiful palette of the innocents, and that's what I really want to highlight in Green Room. Um, countless shades of green emerge from every corner of the frame of this genre movie. I mean, this has no right to be as artfully done as it is. Uh, we have the evergreen trees of the Pacific Forest, the club lights that flicker on the surfaces of a nearby river, the glow of a secret room beneath the floorboards of a dingy backstage green room. Saunier rivals F. Scott Fitzgerald in his ability to mine the symbolic value of a single color. Uh, green stands for envy, deception, malice, disease, nature, isolation, protection. But most of all, it stands for naivete. These punk kids and these neo-Nazis think that they know exactly who they are at the beginning of this encounter. These are kids who revere the damned and go in saying that, you know, we we would rather kind of live in abject poverty than uh, conform to any kind of societal conventions. Uh, and then when put in an actual life or death situation, you tend to respond a bit more clumsily, a bit more abruptly than perhaps the image that you had a fashion for yourself. And that goes, goes the same for the neo-Nazis in this. So on the one hand, punks versus neo-Nazis sounds like a romp, but also it is, uh, it is a, a beautifully envisioned film as entertaining and kind of uh, suspenseful um, as it plays out on screen. And the, my number six movie is called The Fits, uh, another directorial debut, this one by Anna Rose Homer. Uh, it tells the story of Tony, an athletic young girl from Cincinnati who spends almost all of her time at a rec center near her housing complex, training in the boxing gym with her older teenage brother. Uh, she feels herself pulled to the intensely physical female domain of the dance team that also practices at the rec center. And she feels all of the kind of expected anticipation and nervous excitement and fear of trying something new. And then all of a sudden, something very strange happens. The girls on the team start experiencing these fits these uh, seizures of sorts where they go into a physical reverie, they fall on the floor, they're either incredibly sick or experiencing some kind of divine revelation. No one knows uh, what's happening, no one knows what's causing it, but everyone knows that um, no one can escape it. You are inevitably going to be next. It kind of reminded me a bit of It It Follows in terms of the suspense that there's no absolute escape from what is about to fall upon you here. It's quite a clear metaphor for uh, puberty, for... um, some, you know, trying, kind of emerging from a kind of pre-sexual identity as a preteen into a fully kind of sexual being as a teenager. Uh, and a, another, you know, low-budget movie made in the editing room. The music here creates an incredible amount of suspense, pulling in all of the clapping and jumping of the feet from the step team into these staccato woodwinds and clarinets. Um, it's really, it's a suspenseful movie. It feels like a horror movie at times. Uh, and it really ends in a beautiful and mysterious place. It's a short story's worth of material, but it plays out as a real meditation on adolescence and all the competitiveness that, that goes into it. Um, so that is the, the fits. And then I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let, uh, my number five, I'm gonna let Brian Meacham, uh, say my number five. And then I want to hear your, your all number six and five. Oh, Brian. So this is Brian Meacham from the Yale Film Study Center, and we'll hear his pick for the best movie of 2016. This is 
Brian Meacham from the Film Archive at the Yale Film Study Center calling about one of my favorite movies of 2016. My vote is for Taika Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People, which is an adventure comedy coming-of-age film about a boy named Ricky Baker, who's played by a newcomer named Julian Dennison, and his adopted father, played by the great Sam Neill. Uh, the film is really a dryly funny film full of great little moments and beautifully observed interactions, as well as broad comedy and over-the-top action, all with a keen eye for great cinemascope composition and some subtle visual effects that work really well. Uh, it encapsulates everything I really love about New Zealand, a dry and self-deprecating sense of humor, self-reliance and an independent spirit, the gorgeous wilderness there, the Maori culture, and great pop music. Uh, search YouTube for the Ricky Baker Happy Birthday song if you'd like a taste. So I, I'm not going to say any more on top of that. I think Brian said it perfectly. Hunt for the Wilder People is my, my number five. Another year, another Taika Waititi movie makes my top ten list. So we've got Green Room at number seven, The Fits at number six, and Hunt for the Wilder People at number five. Arnold, could you give me your number six and number five? Sure. Um, some people, most people who saw this movie put it higher on the list than I did. It's on the list, but it's not right at the top. La La Land, directed by Damien Chazelle, who also directed Whiplash. Uh, starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. It's a modern musical. It brings back the idea of the musical to Hollywood again. Uh, some of it was uncannily filmed. How do they arrange this? How do they arrange that moment on uh, the turnpike in Los Angeles with uh, with that dance routine? And um, The movie had a problem for me, but it overcame it. It took me half the movie to become emotionally engaged. But once I got to that midpoint, I was fully engaged, and I liked it really a lot. It was innovative. It was dazzling to the eye. And every time that John Legend was on the screen was the most captivating moments for me. I well, like La La Land, but La, it's, it's not right at the top. A wonderful pick. And then what is your, so La La Land's number six, what's number five? Number five, Indignation, directed by James Seamus, who used to head up Focus Features, his directorial debut, and what a debut it is. It's just an oasis of intelligence. It's regarded as the most faithful adaptation of a Philip Roth novel. It's set in 1951. It stars Logan Lehrman and Sarah Gadon uh, with a working-class Jewish boy avoiding the draft by going to college. And it has a kind of O. Henry ending to it, but a sad O. Henry ending to it instead of an uplifting one. Uh, it humanized uh, a relationship that we would, that he had with a girl on whom he, with whom he had a crush who was out of his culture and out of his depths on some level. Um, humanized which other storytellers would have caricatured. The movie was beautiful, touching, and unpredictable. I couldn't predict its you, outcome. You know, one of the more surprising aspects of that movie for me was how the the female kind of love interest, blinking her name, but she kind of gets short shrift from Philip Roth in the novel, but she really comes to life on screen. I mean, right. she is someone who we understand the allure, and we also understand the kind of trauma of her life. She is the the actress who plays her, gives her enough depth that we understand that this isn't just about the kind of incredibly egotistical, kind of neurotic Jewish male protagonist of the Philip Roth novel. We have, you know, there are other people in this world who affect him, and, and we get to see how those people kind of interact. And, and I just... It was so easy to caricature that girl, but she was treated with great empathy and dignity, and that's what one of the things among the things I appreciated. About Definitely, it, it was a perfect credit. movie to me. What sticks in my mind about that movie is the astonishingly brutal rhetorical bullying by the dean. Right, those times when uh, when the oh, I had a dean like that. that. 
when we, I went to We've college. all known people like that. That's the thing. The yeah, movie yeah. kind of pauses halfway through, right, for a 20-minute just kind of show off, yeah, showdown yeah, exactly. between the dean and over. Well, and show off. Show yeah. off, yeah. yeah. Um, give me give me a few, two, two picks. <clears throat> okay, uh, my number six, uh, Brian and Tom have taken care of pretty well. Uh, my, the category is uh, Best Kiwi Film with Lots of Haiku, uh, which is, of course, Hunt for the Wilder People. I, I have little more to say that hasn't been said, except that it is a sentimental film, and yet the sentimentality is so brilliantly cut by the goofiness and the natural beauty and the goofiness. Uh, one of the funniest comedies of the year, and and as Tom mentioned, uh, the second uh, Taika Waititi uh, film in a row for him, he, he named uh, What We Do in the Shadows last year in on his list. Uh, my next is the best entry in the horror renaissance. Last year I talked about uh, how I think we're living in a golden age of, of uh, horror. The Witch has, has been uh, named twice as the best picture of the year, and it was a terrific film early on. Another one early on, 10 Cloverfield Lane, uh, the, the scariest John Goodman character ever, not excluding Barton Fink. Then at the end of the year, the wonderfully weird uh, The Eyes of My Mother but my prize goes to the last one of these I saw, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which scares us in some of the conventional ways, but mostly creeps us out simply by suggesting, subjecting us to the increasingly mysterious forensic procedure of the title, a wonderful horror film. That's that's great. So we, I'm, I'm so glad to see Hunt for the Wilder People making your list. You know, a small movie, um, a movie that again does wonders with a relatively little budget. Although it has become the highest grossing movie in New Zealand history, uh, surpassing Taika Waititi's film Boy and Autopsy of Jane Doe. Not one that I've seen. So, so the Lord of the Rings trilogy isn't considered a uh, New Zealand, <laughs> not film. an authentically uh, New Zealand film industry <laughs> movie. Um, okay, so I want to say you know, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH. LP, New Haven's Home for Community Radio, and we are going through with Dan uh, Heaton and Arnold Gorlick, our top 10 movies of 2016. We have a little over, uh, I'd say, 12 minutes left, so I'm going to do my four and three in a row again, and then I'm going to ask you guys to do those two, and then we'll spend a bit more time with our twos and ones. So my number four is... uh, the Lobster by Yorgos Lanthimos, wow. uh, the English-language <laughs> debut of a Greek filmmaker who has really developed a cult following over the past few years for making very dark comedies about the absurd, arbitrary, and cruel conventions that structure the most intimate of human relations. So uh, The Lobster, I mean, it probably wins uh, the award for the best, most original premise of any movie this year. Single people are forced to check into a hotel where they have 45 days to find a romantic partner, and if they fail to do so, they're forcibly turned into an animal of their choice. At least they get to pick. Uh, I think that this movie, you know, more so than just about any work of art that I've recently, uh, you know, read or seen or observed, deserves the adjective Kafka-esque. This is truly in the line of the early 20th century author Franz Kafka in just its absurd and cruel punishment of people who, one, either try to deviate from social norms or two, just follow those social norms to a T, revealing that, in fact, built into this system is an incredible amount of... uh, you know, yes, humor, but also cruelty. And that humorous cruelty is inflicted upon the bodies of just about everyone uh, in a Kafka story and in The Lobster. Uh, my number three, I'm going to let uh, a former guest of the show and Yale Film Studies professor Dudley Andrew uh, say a little bit about uh, my number three pick for the best movie of 2016. Dudley Andrew, film professor at Yale University. Cinema this year was really about poetry. And the best films I saw were Moonlight 
and a Chinese film that's been very difficult to look at in the U.S., Kylie Blues. I love them both for their texture, for the care in which they're put together. It's poetry. So Moonlight is my number three. Moonlight should probably be the number one of everyone's list, but I'm putting it at a three just because that's how the cards fell uh, when I was putting this list together last night. Uh, it's received a lot of praise thus far, and it, it deserves every single word of that praise. It's Barry Jenkins' second feature film that is kind of an ode to empathy. It tells the story. Three and chapters. I heard him say he was born out of retirement. I was shocked <laughs> of, 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 as a filmmaker. Oh, was he really? After he Medicine said. for Melancholy? Well, second feature, but uh, how, how fortunate we are that he was brought out of retirement because this is a movie, again, about a story that is not often told, a young gay black man growing up in Miami, not often told uh, in most movies that we see, but what an incredible like sensory experience. Jenkins, as a director, manages to kind of impart every physical sensation that his main character, little Chiron Black, uh, feels to the audience. We feel the sand beneath our fingers. We feel the ocean breeze on our face. Uh, every kind of physical experience that this very sensitive individual has, uh, we too get to partake in. And I think that's really the route to empathy that this movie takes and that may actually change the way that people think. I mean, it's one of those rare works of art where you may actually think differently after leaving it than when you came in. And I think a big part of the that impact comes from, you know, when you feel the same thing that someone else is feeling, you don't necessarily want them to suffer the way that it's they It's an unexpected transforming experience. Uh, uh, and you identify with unlikely characters it's just, that are far from I know our world. you're a big fan of Moonlight. Maybe we'll hear it a bit later in your list, Arnold, but I want to give me your, your four. Wait, what, what are we up to now? Four and three? Four and three. Four and give three. me your four and three quickly. Manchester by the Sea, directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who also did You Can Count on Me. Stars Casey Affleck. It's clear that of the two, he's the actor in the family where the guy is the, the other. His brother's a professional <laughs> who makes money. Ooh. Michelle Williams uh, <laughs> plays his wife. Um, it's a movie which dissects grief and gradually explains the behavior of an individual. We don't know why. I don't want to give away what it is. But he's called upon, upon the death of his brother, to become the guardian of his nephew. It also means moving to a place that he left. We don't know why he left. So he rejects the role, resists the role at least, and we begin to unravel the complexity of his emotional life to see why this is happening. Uh, one critic said, I don't know why we were put through all this, even though it was well done. I know why we were put through it. I thought it was a worthy worthy thing. Number three, Lion, directed by Garth Davis, stars Dev Patel, Nicole Kidman. Uh, true story, straightforward filmmaking, nothing innovative about the film, and though the scenes in India were so well done with the little child, Saru, um, we feel every moment, every bit of his loss and his quandary about a child separated from his impoverished family in a rural part of India, gets on a decommissioned train, winds up a thousand by accident, winds up a thousand miles away in Calcutta, cannot identify where he came from, doesn't speak the local language Bengali because he speaks Hindi, and what happens to his life. This is one of the rare movies where you want a positive resolution and it required it, and it delivers it with such power and, and, and such a depth of feeling. It's such a humanizing experience, and it's backed up by real-life footage at its conclusion. And so that's Manchester by the Sea at number four, Lion at number three. And you know what? Because of time, give me your number two now as well, and then we'll, we'll do one kind of extended round for number one. I didn't one. even expect to like this movie. I thought it was an utter masterpiece. Jackie, directed by Pablo Lorraine, uh, Natalie Portman, 
I believe gives one of the two or three greatest on-screen performances, and I'm saying this without hyperbole, in the history of motion pictures. As as Jackie said, between her experience and her wanting to burnish the image of the JFK presidency and White House between his assassination and four days later his funeral. It also stars Billy Crudup, who was uh, meant to herald uh, Harkin, uh, uh, Theodore White, uh, as the journalist interviewer. It's, absolutely, an absolute masterpiece. I didn't even wasn't even predisposed to like it. I think a divisive performance, but I'm totally on your side, Arnold. I thought this was a masterpiece as well. It's not on my list, but it, it very is, well. It, it, very it well is a terrific been. film. I wouldn't say one of the best performances ever, but her performance is is remarkable. For me, the greatest yeah. performance yeah. ever is Marion Cotillard in La Vie en Rose, and I mm-hmm. think it riles that. Dan, give me quickly your your four three two. Best documentary whose title is unnervingly part of the joke. At the time I wrote in my blog, I'm convinced that Anthony Weiner was a terrific congressman <laughs> and that he'd have been a terrific mayor. But dude, if you can't keep it in your pants, at least don't share photos of it. What he has lost, what he has forfeited, is enormous. But so I think is what New Yorkers and the Democratic Party have lost. It's Greek tragedy with a smartphone and an unsympathetic 24/7 news cycle as chorus. That's what I wrote then. We didn't know the half of it then, did we? Uh, next is the best musical who stars neither sing nor dance well. Arnold has already talked about La La Land. Uh, one of my readers called me on omitting it from my review of the top films of the year, never mind top ten. And he's right. Uh, only one of its many flaws, the fact that it becomes a different, much inferior film when things go bad for the couple, matters at all. And that is far outweighed by the sequence of absolute transport near the end, which lets us simultaneously have our happy cake and eat the ashes of our despair. Next is the film with the highest ratio of laughter provided to laughter expected. Uh, Manchester by the Sea for me is a movie about the dumbest thing you'll ever do, and it made me think of the dumbest thing I ever did, which could easily have been fatal for me and for loved ones and for strangers but through sheer luck had no bad consequences at all. Near the other end of the luck spectrum, some people's stupidest everything carry them away, so the consequences, while perhaps painful, are short-lived. But at the very end of the bad luck spectrum, the dumbest thing you ever did doesn't kill you, it just rips away everything that protects a human from pain, leaving you an animate, raw nerve and untouchable in every literal and figurative way. That's Lee Chandler, the Casey Affleck character, in Kenneth Lonergan's third and third great film. That's that's beautifully put. I, Manchester by the Sea didn't make my list of very well, could have. And I, I there was an, un, there is a lot of humor to this film, right? There is a lot of love to this film, and it is a despairing one. It is a very difficult one to watch at points. Um, I've actually found the, the biggest problem that I had with it was structural. I found that... The, the flashback um, structure of the movie pulled me out too many times from the kind of raw emotional connection between the uncle and the nephew. I know that it provided much needed backstory to a character who's kind of defined by his despair, but I loved how in the opening sequence we understand character through repetition. We see Lee Chandler going through his daily routine and each, you know, each time he sweeps the, the snow from the sidewalk, each time he experiences a tenant and is abused by them, we learn something new about him. As the movie kind of distends over two and a half hours, I found it, it lost that tightness of its of structure. I, and I actually liked the way we were disoriented by that by that narrative. Most years, this would be my best film of the year by a long shot. 
Hey, Tom, Arnold, Dan, this is Russ D. Martin, director of An Inappropriate Effect. It's easy for us cinephiles to turn our noses up at a blockbuster, but making a big-budget popcorn movie with a phone book of top-billed stars can often end up as a cringeworthy crap fest, or hopefully just a forgettable shrug of a film. So for my money, the film of 2016 that deserves some film nerd credit has to be Marvel's Civil War, a film that knows what it is and succeeds in being the best version of that. Happy New Year. Well, so we're getting down to just about the end of the list. Um, my uh, number two, and I'll be very brief on this, although I watched it last night and I could say a lot about it, uh, it, I think, is unjustly overlooked, came out at the beginning of the year, and that is the Coen Brothers' latest masterpiece, Hail Caesar, uh, starring uh, Josh Brolin as Eddie Mannix, a 1940s Hollywood You're studio exec, man. who spends just as much time playing the professional sleuth as he does putting together next season's slate of blockbuster releases. Uh, this is the eight and a half for the Hollywood studio system for me. This is a, a movie that celebrates the the wonder, the creativity of movie making, the way that it, it can actually, studio system, when working at its best, cannot just create entertainment, propaganda, and art, or find some balance between the three, but it actually brings people together. This producer, yes, he is, you know, he is one person who has a lot of problems to solve, but this is an ode to all of the different talents that go into making a movie. Um, and and uh, Hail Caesar, I think, is well worth a watch. So we only have, we have four minutes to go through our number one movie of the year. So each of you gets a minute and a half to talk about your, your favorite movie. I know it's unjust, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. Arnold, what's your favorite movie of 2016? To me, hands down, far and away, the secretariat of this year is Moonlight, uh, directed by Barry Jenkins, uh, based on a play uh, by uh, uh, Terrell McCraney called Black Boys Look Blue in Moonlight, stars Mahershala Ali, Janelle Monet, Alex Hibbert, Travanti Rhodes, and Naomi Harris. Um, this one just hit me out of the blue. I I went to see it because of the buzz at Toronto. Um, utterly poetic movie. What I'm struck by is the maturity and the restraint, the self-confidence, and how much Barry Jenkins respected his audience. He followed the rule of uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer who always said, just tell the story. Don't explain anything. And... Um, uh, you know what it's about. I said what it's about following the three stages of a life of a boy in uh, the projects in Liberty City in East Miami. Unlikely characters to identify with. The hero of the movie is a drug dealer. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. To me, it's one of the 50 greatest movies I've ever seen. Definitely the, the movie of 2016. Even though it's not at the top of my list, it, I, I think this is the movie the that everyone, Award. everyone needs and to see. And not because it's black-centric or African-American-centric. It deserves it. And it also meets... It answers the questions of last year, things that were omitted. It's a great pick. Tom, you can put the knives away. Uh, my last is uh, also my number one film of the year, and the category is the film most disserved by the glib characterization, the black gay film. I saw Moonlight the weekend after the election at a time that seemed to be all about the differences between us, the irreconcilable differences between us, I saw a film about commonalities, about the human imperatives of love and protection, of belonging and defining your own space, of being yourself, even if that involves radical reinvention. This is the most moving film I've seen in a long time, one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. And as Arnold has alluded to the acting, which is uniformly wonderful, 
uh, including some people we have, have seen and loved before and some people we've never seen. What I think is remarkable is particularly with the Chiron character, the astonishing melding, not so much of physical appearance as of body language of, of this is the same person. This is a nine-year-old and a teenager and a young adult, but it's the same person. Wonderful film. It's it incredible. Perfect. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Moonlight and is... Uh, there's never been a movie made like it. That's the other thing. I can't, can't wait to see what Barry Jenkins does next. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to end on a slightly more sour note. I think Moonlight is a movie that actually makes you kind of feel good upon leaving it. And the movies, although this is this is kind of a cheat, I'm afraid, my number one is kind of a triptych. So I've got um, three, although I'll pick one, but there are three that I think really reinforce one another and inform this main theme of mine. 2016 uh, was a difficult year for this country, one of traumatic self-awareness of just how fragile our democracy is, of how vulnerable we are to the allure of celebrities who appeal to mainstream media's insatiable appetite for spectacle, um, and of the nefarious persistence of racism and misogyny at the highest reaches of American politics and culture. And the three documentaries that I think spoke most beautifully and painfully to that were one that you just mentioned, Wiener, uh, the documentary about the uh, kind of megalomaniacal uh, congressman from New York who tries to resurrect his political career by running for mayor, but can only destroy himself through social media, but also through his just insatiable ego. Uh, and the other two are 13th by Ava DuVernay that tracks the connection between Jim Crow, um, slavery, and uh, and the current state of mass incarceration and the kind of systemic abuse of black bodies in this country. But if I had to pick one, uh, my number one movie of 2016 is uh, Ezra Edelman's five-part, eight-hour documentary, O.J. Made in America, that though produced by ESPN, did have a theatrical release. I'm going to say that it qualifies for this. This movie, uh, it tells the story of America. It tells the story of of race, of class, of misogyny, of inner city life in late 20th century America, all through the lens of one incredible story. Uh, I never thought that I'd want to spend more time thinking about O.J. Simpson, but this movie made me understand how important it is to reflect upon this story on the distorting uh, power of celebrity, the incredibly kind of fatuous race-neutral language that accompanies celebrity, you know, this idea that we are kind of past the era of race. Uh, O.J. Simpson kind of embodied that, or at least that's what he projected, but of course, that was a lie. Um, the the problems of, of racism and misogyny are very much alive today, and I think that, that this movie in, encapsulates that painfully and beautifully. So, O.J. Made in America is my uh, number one movie of 2016. We we have to run, guys. Arnold and Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure to thank talk through these movies with you. Um, check out Madison Art Cinemas in Madison, Connecticut. It is an indispensable art house theater in this area. And check out cheeseblab.blogspot.com for more of Dan. We will catch up with you next week for our first full episode of 2017.